Hey guys, I'm Adam Rappaport, and this is the Bon Appetit Foodcast. All right, this week we've got food director Carla Lolly Music chatting with associate editor Christina Che about how steaming is the most overlooked technique in the cooking game and why it shouldn't be. And then senior food editor Andy Barragani talks to cookbook author Cal Petronell, uh, who just published his third cookbook, Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta, a vegetarian cookbook, kind of. Cal focuses on how meat should be a supporting player in your meals and less of the main ingredient. Uh, The book is also the second pick for our monthly cookbook club here at Bon Appetit. If you haven't checked it out already, you should. Just go to bonappetit.com and search cookbook club, and we will tell you all about it there. Uh, And with that, let's do this thing. Christina Che. Carla Music. I feel like if we're going to talk about steaming, one of the questions I wanted to ask just to kind of like find out what kind of a person are you is when you go to like the Turkish baths or the Korean bathhouse or any kind of a bathing like destination, are you sauna or steam room? A hundred percent steam. (laughs) Always and forever. Although, to be fair, there's something to be said for rotating. It's yeah. like, you know, if you're, like, kind of steaming and then you want to, like, do the dry thing. Yeah. You like, kind of rotate Or, like, do forth. a plunge pool and then do a little dry it's and like then a, go back. It's a whole circle of life within the three rooms. And I feel like... What are you? Well, if I had to choose a number one, it would be a sauna. So, I guess if I were a food, I want to be in a dry roasting method. <laughs> And I think it's like apropos that you would choose steaming because you, in fact, are one of the people who like made me think about steaming differently. I love steaming. Body and food. (laughs) Body and mind. (laughs) Um, But you wrote like an ode to steaming in the magazine that at the time I was like, you know, steaming is one of those things that I feel like got a leftover like an abuse of a cooking method through dietetic recipe ends, you know? See, I grew up, I came of age in the 80s where I also think was like a very peak calorie counting, like the beginning of being super specific about what you asked for in a restaurant era. Mm. And asking for a plate of steamed vegetables was a way that someone who hates pleasure could go out to eat and order food that was like somehow safe or like not bad for you. And so I grew up thinking that that was a pleasure deprivating kind of approach to everything. And so the cooking that I grew up with was like everything started with like, you know, a quarter inch of olive oil and five cloves of garlic. Mm -hmm. And that was how most of the cooking that I grew up eating I thought started with that but the steaming method when you wrote about it it was a very eye-opening thing because you you talked about the method but then also talked about how steamed food the right way to pair it was with a very punchy very flavorful sauce Mm -hmm. that would kind of go with everything but that it was just like a great a great way to cook especially on the weeknight because steam is very high heat and it's very moist heat. And so it's like very 
it's a great way to cook like almost any type of food. It cooks it quickly so it doesn't have time to dry out, but it also imparts all this like steam and liquid so it doesn't dry out. Yeah, I feel like it just creates that sort of steam room environment for like, you know, whatever you want to do, whether it's a vegetable, whether it's like a piece of fish. And I feel like the cool thing about steaming is that it it does, I think, give you a certain amount of control that someone like me, who is very particular, I think, about not wanting to overcook something. I like being able to open something and like check on it, you uh-huh. know, and, like poke around, which it's I feel also like fast and it's super fast. Yeah. But I feel like whenever I have something in the oven, I, I don't know if this is true, but I feel like I'm always just like once it's in the oven, I like can't open it and I can't look at it and I can't poke around because like, all this heat's going to like right. come out That's and I'm going like, to mess it up. Yeah. I mean, it's not true that you would mess it up, but it <laughs> is true that that an oven when you open the door is going to drop like 30 to 50 degrees. So you can't be constantly checking around in there. You do have to trust a certain amount that the things are happening. But yeah, steaming. So let's 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 break it down a little bit. I also think that there's an important distinction that came up recently between steaming as kind of just the technique, like the pure technique or method of steaming versus steaming as part of a preparation where what's actually happening when the food is cooking is steaming, but it's not what maybe you think of when you just think steamed food. Okay. So when someone says steaming to me immediately, it's bring two inches of water to a simmer in a stock pot fit with a steamer basket or bamboo steamer, but that you're creating s- steam, obviously, right, through mm-hmm. a small amount of water and then putting the food on a surface where the steam can pass through. So if you have one of those little steamer inserts that like collapse open, which is mostly what I used, or there's some little inserts that go right into the pan that have the holes in them or the bamboo steamer basket, or now they have those really beautiful fancy ceramic the like steamer um, pots the yeah the, the gia brand or they're whatever so is, pretty that, was, that we mentioned in that story yeah that are like two hundred dollars but but they're, wow they're beautiful <laughs> um and i i don't have those i i am a hundred percent pro the collapsible steamer basket yeah which i kind of realized like later on i feel like after i moved i i moved apartments for like once a year for like six years in the process i just had to like shed so much just like crap yeah and like in the process I was just like okay three-tiered bamboo steamer that I bought one time to make Alex Lau's mom's soup dumplings for a party (laughs) because I thought that was cool that's why I have mine we had a dumpling party and I bought three steamer baskets and like to be fair for dumplings in specific I think that's like the move yeah because it just because you can do so many of them at once and you have the tiers the steam moves really kind of kind of beautifully throughout all the levels it like rises to the top and it cooks everything through and you can make like what 20 dumplings at once or something so and those are they're lightweight they're inexpensive they last a really long time they're easy to clean like it is a great device yeah but then i was just like i I can't i I can't be transporting this to another apartment just to like bury it in like a a corner and never look at it again. So now I feel like I just use the the five dollar collapsible steamer basket that I got on the Bowery at like the restaurant supply store. That, and it's metal. And it's metal. And actually, it's broken. When I first bought it, and a lot of steamer baskets I think are like this. 
they're collapsible and they have a little metal rod yeah. that comes up yeah. through the top with yeah. like a little ring on yeah. the top so you can kind of latch onto the ring and like they tip over it. every time but yes i think that's what that ring is for so somehow like mine broke that rod broke off of my basket and then i found out oh, I can put a lot more things in here now that that rod isn't like in the way. <laughs> oh, because it's not going it's through the like center totally point. flat surface. Nice. So I was like, oh, wow, like I can put fish in here. I can put a bowl in here and steam things in the bowl, which will... Like I think in a very like pre-steamer, any kind of basket life, I did balled up pieces of aluminum foil in the bottom of the pot and then put a plate rested a plate on top of that and put the food on the plate mm, I like that but it was still circulating around but not like through it wasn't ideal but at any rate the point is that you have you have steam which is very high heat you have a closed environment and you have food that is adjacent to but not sitting in that simmering water right the food is never touching right the water and you know it's great for all of those reasons that we just said. It's like there's almost no cleanup. It's very quickly comes to temperature. It's a very quick method. It's a very forgiving method. And it's like a very multi-purpose method. So I had been kind of inspired to like, why don't I steam things more often? Like not thinking about the things. There are things that I always steam. Mm-hmm. Like the best way to cook a whole lobster is not boiling, but steaming, totally. right? So it's like, I will, I, you know, once you start like going through it, and artichokes also is a food that even when I was in a, a pre-steam appreciation point in my life, always steamed artichokes. Can you imagine people boil them? Oh, and they get thing? so waterlogged and like... That's very strange for me. And terrible. So yeah, steaming an artichoke, like that seems like it makes the, the most amount of sense then when I was working on my cookbook, which isn't out yet, but, but it this will is obviously be. <laughs> my favorite chapter already. <laughs> the book is called Where Cooking Begins. And one of the things I really wanted to do was go through like all the basic methods. And when I sat down to make that list, it was like obviously steaming gets to be at the party, you know, because it is this like basic, very approachable, essential master method it just doesn't get like a ton of appreciation so in the process of working on the book I steamed so many things and then was like I should be steaming everything all the time even chicken breast which was like the ultimate Mm -hmm. Jane Fonda I'm being difficult at a restaurant order of like steamed chicken breast which is just you know the most I don't know the most make funnable kind of thing you could order in your life is if delicious i mean it kind of makes sense when you really think about it here's a piece of meat that has virtually no fat right it has no like protection if you expose it to like generally i feel like all kinds of heat right like you throw it in an oven it's going to get dry like you throw it into you boil it like it's even a hard sear like if you're making a cutlet it needs to be in the pan for a very short amount of time or it is 100% going to dry out. And I feel like people are always just like, chicken breast like so dry, like blah, blah. And it's just like, so why don't you just cook it in the wet room? Right. AKA the steamer. Where like I none know. of that moisture All can like All these chicken breasts like thought escape. they loved the, the sauna. These Turns chicken- out they need to go. They're steamers. They are total steamers. So wait, let's talk about the no protection part though because <laughs> the chicken breast, the chicken breast, breast with the skin versus skinless boneless 
Oh, yes. And I wanted to talk to you about this, too, because of a recipe that we have. But you you go first. No, that was what I want to talk about. Like, which, what is, I feel like you want to stack the deck just even for just a little bit of protection on the chicken breast. And because there it is so lean, but steamed chicken skin looks pretty crazy. I feel like it also, I've. I, I, I've never eaten it. I don't think the texture in the end is necessarily something to celebrate, but I feel like having it there as insulation during the process is it, a good idea. Yeah. What was the recipe that you that made you think about this? So the game-changing steamed chicken breast recipe for me was one that we published in 2016. It was in that Japanese home cooking primer story. That was January. Yes, yeah. January 2016. Beautiful story. One of the cooking techniques that they focused on in that story, I think, was about steaming. And the recipe that we ran with it uh, was this sake steamed chicken and kabocha squash. And there are like three things that I think are really cool about this recipe. One, you're actually steaming not in water, but you're steaming in a flavored liquid, in this case, the sake. Right. It is subtle, but I think you do taste the difference um, when you have those like other flavors going on in the steam. Really aromatic, a little bit sweet. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. The second thing that I feel like is cool is that it's a recipe in which you can steam both a protein and a vegetable at the same time, and they finish cooking together, and then you're just ready to eat. And then the third thing that I thought was... Uh, well, not cool. I thought it was interesting <laughs> is that they do actually ask for skin on chicken breasts. And if you look at that photo, like the the skin looks insane. It's very dimpled. It's like it's like goose dimples. It almost looks like raw. Uh-huh. <laughs> in a way, you know, it's like it's still, it still it still like maintains its like Right. It's ch- the dotted, color doesn't really change, you know. Like, yeah. Goose dimpled isn't a word, but, you know, yeah, let's go with that. So I wasn't actually clear. It's not actually clear whether you're supposed to eat it with the skin or not, but I do not. So I think that it depends on what you like and don't like. I think you can totally pull it off afterwards if you don't like it. But I also think that there's something comforting if that's your jam to that kind of soft and like a little bit gelatinous (laughs) texture, which when we did it, and now I'm looking at the picture from the technique page of the book. Yeah, we have the skin is definitely on because I feel like, again, it's, it's imparting a little bit of flavor. Fat, I always say like is flavor, carries heat. Um, it's a little bit of an insulation. If you end up pulling it off at the end, like that's fine. So if you buy a bone-in skin-on chicken breast, great. If you buy boneless skinless, it will also still work. The cooking time might be a little bit different. Mm-hmm. The other thing we did, there were two other recipes that we did, or not even recipes, just preparations in the book. One was um, we did a block of silken tofu and mm. just steamed that. And it was just such an easy way, especially with silken tofu, which if you try to handle it in any way, it just Forget is going to fall apart, which is really nice in a soup or something else. But there was something really nice about just steaming it and having it come to temperature and then be really simply like you can sauce it with anything you want and then spoon it. And it was like really lovely. And I loved that. And then the other thing which came up in research, I think originally founded in America's Test Kitchen, is that you can steam eggs and make hard boiled eggs in a steamer, which is an amazing way to do like a large volume of hard boiled eggs. 
and you know I have feelings about this. Let's talk about because it. Because we talked about this yesterday. <laughs> okay, so my my thing, this blew my mind also. I also only learned about steaming eggs like in the last year or whatever. And it took me a really long time as a cook to understand that heat in any of its forms is it's all heat. Like it's all like the same thing that cooks food. Right. Whether that be heat from a pot of boiling water or the dry heat of an oven or like fry oil. Yeah. Or fry oil. All of it just same all of it works in the same way to like cook the thing. Right. And so when I thought about the concept of steaming eggs, it was just like, oh, this makes so much sense. I know. But it never occurred to me because I had never ever seen anyone do it or you think had them. But but unlike a pot of boiling water, where when you put you know a dozen eggs into, you displace a lot of water, you bring the temperature of the water way down quickly. It takes a while to come back, and then they're like clinking and clacking all over the place, <laughs> and you know br- the shells get cracked, and then you get the weird like mohawk of egg white sticking I through the get thing. So upset. By so that. that just doesn't happen in a steamer, and and say you're my mom, and you need to do seven dozen eggs for Easter decorating, or like I'm th- throwing a party and plan to do eight dozen um, pickled eggs, I'm going to steam them. Mm -hmm. And it takes about 12 minutes. And they come out great. So that's another, like, more love for the steamer. I cannot prove this, but I would also say anecdotally that it seems more likely that the eggs are going to stay in their sort of nicely intact yolk right in the middle of the egg, Mm. you know, form. Because I feel like things just kind of like happen when they're in the boiling water you know they just they get like turned said, around they, yeah they do yeah. <laughs> they get all tripped up and then sometimes you just end up with this weird the one weird egg where it's just like oh the yolk's over there you know and it's just like it doesn't affect the end product obviously but it's right okay so those are ways to take virtually any food that you've boiled simmered roasted sauteed and instead of doing that to it Put a couple of inches in a pot, insert your steamer basket, bring it to a simmer, put the food in there, get a hacksaw and take the little knob <laughs> off of your your steamer basket so you can get, you know, fish. Also very forgiving, beautiful method for that. And then put the lid on and, you know, smaller pieces of vegetables are going to take six to seven minutes. A whole chicken breast might take more like 10 to 12, but nothing is really hanging out for that long. So online we have a recipe for like the a perfectly steamed lobster and I think for a pound and a quarter we said like 8 minutes. I think a whole globe artichoke might take 35 to 40, but that's like definitely on the the long Longer. end. But like Christina said, just go in and check it out. Okay. Now let's talk about steaming. Steaming that is happening even though you think you're just like cooking. Mm, Yes. I'm talking about clams. Yes. (laughs) That's like a thing we do already. We just don't know we're steaming. Right. So any like clams for linguine with clams where you do, like I said, you're starting with olive oil and garlic and then you put like a little bit of white wine and you put your clams in there and you cover it basically you're creating a steaming environment. I don't know of any other way to cook clams, if I'm being <laughs> honest. You know what I mean? It's just like... That's the way. That's the only way I've ever been taught. Right. And I think cooking mussels that way is the same. Anything that opens its shell. Right. And then that liquid adds it into the rest of the steaming liquid. 
Oh, right. Which I feel like is another thing, too, that often gets overlooked in the conversation about steaming is there are a lot of ways, I feel like, to make really good use of that liquid that you're cooking in. Most people probably discard it. And you know what? Honestly, a lot of the times I will, too. But in that sake steamed chicken that we were talking about, I think you actually you pour the broth over the chicken Mm, and the squash because it's just been scented by... It's sake and chilies and ginger, and it's cooking in the simmering liquid as the steam from the liquid is cooking the protein and the vegetables up on top. Everything's like doing so much. Right. And then all of a sudden, not only do you have protein and vegetables, but you also have soup. It's like, are you (laughs) kidding? Like, yeah. All of the things. (laughs) That's how I see it anyway. I mean, I think it's similar to the way that people, you know, we really did kind of have to work hard to convince the world to save its or pasta water, just these things that we like subconsciously have grown up discarding as we cook and they're actually, they're liquid gold. Right. They have quality. So maybe the art, the liquid from steaming your artichoke, which was just kind of a way to get to the end of the road there, might not taste amazing. But when you're making a meal in your steam basket, um, like the page that you wrote about for the magazine where you have different kinds of vegetables all together the basis of the whatever liquid those things give off could maybe get stirred into a dipping sauce or become some kind of, you know, you could even just like melt a little bit of butter and season that with salt and pepper. Totally. And then that would be like a delicious sauce for your steamed food. Yeah. I feel like that also just gets at one of the key points, which is I feel like we're not advocating steaming as a way of getting away from fat and flavor it's like steam, get the fat and flavor for somewhere else <laughs> yes. and pour it all over that stuff and like go to town. Totally. And I feel like ultimately, especially with vegetables, turnips or squash or like broccolini or what have you, there's something really like elegant to me about the way that they cook in steam and yeah. just kind of end up tasting. They taste like more of themselves than you can ever get, I think from roasting them in an oven or, you know, other certain like dry heat applications where it's like, you know, it's still a delicious thing and maybe it caramelizes and browns and stuff, but it becomes something else. Right. And there's nothing wrong with that something else, but it's just kind of a different way of looking at something where maybe like, you know, if you've, if you've grown up roasting, hard roasting squash all your life, well, steaming steaming is hands down my favorite way to cook sweet potatoes. Oh my God. Same. A Japanese sweet potato. Which are so starchy. Like in a great way, but they have more starch than a uh, garnet yam or what, you know, an orange sweet potato. And they like dry out. And they dry out in the oven and they get all like leathery. But when you steam them, there's no moisture loss. In fact, there's a moisture gain. And they are, the, the texture is so silky and amazing. And then with something like that, I just want to slather miso and butter all mm. over them. So to your point, fat and flavor like being added. So it's like choosing a method that's going to be great for the thing you're cooking and then choosing a sauce or an accompaniment that's just going to like up the ante altogether. Another example is online steamed artichokes with garlic butter recipe. Because the artichoke has no fat added to it while it's cooked, but then you dunk and every it's nasty. Like I don't want to <laughs> eat like a I don't want to eat a, a naked steamed artichoke. No, thank you. <laughs> but then you get to dunk every single leaf in garlic butter. And I just realized that's what you do to lobster. <laughs> exactly. Truly, that's what you I do think to the, mo- the moral of this cast is steam your thing 
and then serve it with a side of butter and salt and spice. <laughs> it just makes me hungry for steamed food. And it just makes me think about like, again, the Turkish bathhouse. Like, do you want to do the method that's going to make you, you know, plump and smooth everything out and make your skin like super dewy? Or are you choosing the method that like, honestly, you could get like a little dry down and wrinkly in there? <laughs> well, which one are you going to choose the next time you go? I think I want to stay hydrated. I think that's a great choice. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks for inspiring more steaming in my life. Thanks for bringing us more things to steam. Today, I'm beyond thrilled to welcome the author of the New York Times bestseller, 12 Recipes, as well as the book, A Recipe for Cooking, and his newest book, Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta, a vegetarian cookbook, kind of. He's also the host of the podcast, Cooking by Ear. He was the chef of Chez Panisse for over 20 years, where I met him at age 16. Welcome to the podcast, Cal Peter Nell. Thanks, Andy. So good to be back and good to see you again. Good to see you. I have to say, like, <laughs> this is beyond surreal. It's it's like a 360. I couldn't believe it when I knew that you were coming. I think I just have to get it over with. And I don't think I formally did this uh, in my teens. But if you only knew how much you had an influence on me at that age, I feel like I've been telling people for years and years of Chapinese and you and... Mm-hmm what you did and how you influenced the way I cook and uh, to see you now and now with your third book and influencing so many people around the country and around the world and, and how they cook it just it brings me so much joy well you're welcome and you know we have lots of visitors um, through the kitchens at, at Chez Panisse and of course I had uh, many interns and helpers over the 20 plus years that I was there there's some people who you can tell really like get it right away that get what we're doing and the um not the you know certainly the food the beautiful produce the the attention to detail and the artistry that's represented through all the cooks there but also just the culture of um of enjoyment and learning and um and finding pleasure in food and it seems like you're you really were one of those ones who got it Thank right you. off the bat Thank even you. at 16 years old <laughs> Still in high school. <laughs> Still in high school. Yeah. The book is called Almonds, Anchovies, and Pancetta. And the book is divided up really with those three ingredients. Each recipe kind of has at least one of these ingredients. Right. How did you kind of go about even deciding that that's how you wanted to kind of approach the book? You know, I always had this like fantasy idea for a restaurant that would be called uh, Anchovies and Pancetta. And those would be the only kinds of meats that were served there. And I was talking um, at an event for my last book at 92nd Street Y, and someone asked me, you know, what's next for you? And I said, maybe I'm going to do this restaurant called Anchovies and Pancetta. And I described it, and uh, my agent and editor were there, and they were like, well, that could be a good cookbook. And I was like, okay, don't say it if you don't mean it. Uh, So... I went with the idea, and you know, it's the way it's the way I like to eat. I think a lot of people like to eat vegetable forward, lots of uh, produce and grains and beans and greens, and then a little bit of the right kinds of meat as a seasoning. Like thinking of meat as a seasoning, uh, and so cured fish and and cured pork uh, are natural to use in that role. And almonds kind of deliver a similar kind of fat content and little flavor boost. So. I added those in there too because I love to cook with almonds and also I know there's a lot of people who are trying to eat a little more vegetarian and even though there's not big chunks of meat in this book, 
you know, you if you want to steer away from it, you can use the almond chapter and then the the anchovy and pancetta chapters too. Sometimes those things can be left out, or you can, in some cases, even substitute in uh, almonds or some other nuts instead of the anchovies or or pancetta. This is your third cookbook. How? I mean, granted, you've been a you've been cooking for so many years now, but how do you go about just going through kind of the recipe development aspect of of writing a cookbook? Um, that's kind of the fun, the most fun part for me because I just start thinking about the ingredients and thinking about what I cook at home and start and what other dishes that other people cook that I love that include in in this case, those ingredients. And then it just sort of starts to flow. Uh, one of the things I love about writing cookbooks is writing the introductions to, uh, the whole book and to the chapters and to the recipes. And I kind of gave myself a little permission with this one to kind of write whatever I wanted to write about and then almost kind of find the way that it uh, led you back to the recipe, and sometimes it's quite uh, tangential. But I love to use food as like a mnemonic device to bring up the stories of uh, my childhood, of my life, of my own kids, and uh, it really works for me, and it works for other people too. It's something we found on our podcast, Cooking by Ear, is that if you get in the kitchen with someone and you start and you get your hands on some ingredients like stories start to flow, you know, you're cutting the onions and someone says, oh yeah, this is, my mother used to cut the onions this way. And, and then they start to tell some story about their mother or about the garden or about the first time they ever had something like this. And, um, I think it's a wonderful thing. And, uh, you know, it happens of course, around the dinner table. We all know when you kind of relax and begin to eat and maybe have a little wine, but it happens in the kitchen too. It's, it's, uh, it's an indicator. Like it just, it, touches on that kind of nostalgia or uh, memory and and they kind of uh it's definitely easier for people to process i imagine yeah and sometimes it's i these memories will come up uh that really kind of surprise me i remember i was writing about um for the first book for 12 recipes i was writing about uh, mashed potatoes and you know i just sat there at my desk going mashed potatoes mashed potatoes what are and all of a sudden i remembered the story that my father-in-law had told me about how he was in the ar- in the army and he was going through the the mess hall and the mashed potatoes were just really terrible he's a real mashed potato fan and likes them a certain way even then i guess and um he complained and he kept giving the cook a hard time and eventually the cook he told me it was the only time he threw a punch because the cook threw something at him and he punched the cook. And, you know, that all came from mashed potatoes, <laughs> like the first time my father-in-law punched somebody. So, you, We uh, spoke earlier before the podcast and you were saying how there's no, there's no photos in this cookbook, uh, but there are inc- incredibly beautiful illustrations done by you, two of your sons, as well as your wife, Kathleen. What is the reason behind that? I think for this book, I uh, the size of it and um, the feel of it, I wanted it to be... Uh, really personal and kind of pretty in that way. Um, And also, I just started to, like, do these drawings. And, uh, you know, I went to art school, and I I was a painter before I became a cook and have always kind of kept my hand in there a little bit. When I go on vacation, I do watercolor landscapes. And I started doing, you know, just illustrations of produce. And I got so much pleasure from it, I, I just thought, like, I should just do this. And, of course, my wife is an artist and uh, draws all the time, and our sons are, too. It's something that we do when we go out to eat. If there's paper on the table, we all like to draw. So I think that's part of it. Uh, the other part, I think, is that um, and someone said this to me the other day. Uh, there's something about 
illustrations that are a little more timeless or that or that maybe just don't indicate a certain era whereas pho- photography can kind of quickly look uh, like it's from another era oh I, I know that feeling I mean just looking back a few issues even three four years ago it's definitely when we were uh, you could tell where we were at in the yeah. magazine yeah which is okay but I just felt like for this book let's go with a different feel and uh, we had a great time doing it also you know the writing of the book sometimes can become um, uh, you know at the sort of the end of the day you kind of feel bogged down and you're having to like um, test recipes and rewrite the recipes and to take a break and pick up the paintbrush and just sit there and look at a pepper and do a little painting of it was I found really relaxing and kind of refreshing. You mention how there's a passage talking about a particular tool. It's it's my favorite tool, a mortar and pestle, and why. And you tell the reader that it's essential that you get this. Why is it such such an essential tool for you? Um, because I think, especially if you're going to cook from this book, especially the anchovy chapter, you should just get one because they're not they're not that expensive, and you can do the same thing on a cutting board with a knife and you can mash up garlic with a little salt and make a paste and then you can sort of chop and mash in the anchovies. But in a mortar and pestle, it just works so well. And it also, I don't know, it feels like it gets you in touch with some sort of primal Absolutely. tool. Uh, and they're beautiful. They're usually quite beautiful and uh, they kind of make that little sound and you feel a little bit like you're connecting with some ancient ancestor. It gives you a sense of, I mean, my introduction to it was really etchy. I just remember there was like a line of them. There was like four or five of them that we used for everything from making sauces and, and pounding nuts and making garlic paste. And uh, it is definitely an essential tool. Um, yeah. And I think I've become notorious at BA for just like calling for mortar and pestle at my recipes, for my recipes. I know, and I often, I'm in somebody's kitchen and I I sort of sheepishly say like, you don't have a mortar and pestle, do you? And a lot of times people are like, no. What? They what look year are like, we What in? are you, like a, a, a pharmacist from like the 1800s or something? But it's like, well, you should get one. And, um, you know, there's lots of kinds. Uh, I have three different ones at my house. I have a little one that I use for, um, like if I toast spices and grind those up. I have a wooden one that's just the right size for like dressing for a couple of people, and then I have one of those beautiful, you know, the green kind of granite ones. Oh yeah, uh, that's much bigger and is great for um, making like pounding anchovies and garlic. But you know, they're really good for making um, mayonnaise and aioli too. Oh really? Yeah, which is a weird thing that the two things that you can make uh, aioli with are a whisk, which of course has many parts, or a pestle, which is just one, one solid, thing, yeah. um, but they both work. Huh. Yeah, you uh, there. One of the ingredients, anchovies, has been a long debate at BA. Um, I, if I remember correctly, it was probably maybe two years ago. I feel like we were closing a particular issue. Uh, it was probably winter, late, and our editor in chief, Adam, just kind of came in, went in, uh, went to uh, our food director's office, Carl Ollie Music, and said, like, we got to make anchovies optional now on all recipes. And from there on, whenever we call for anchovies, we, uh, we say optional. What are uh, your thoughts on that? I think, like, people who say they don't like anchovies, I think they really do like anchovies. They just haven't 
quite had them in the right context. And one thing about anchovies is that they do, as soon as you open the jar or the can, uh, the clock starts ticking and um, immediately they oxidize pretty quick and they change their flavor changes and gets a little kind of metallic and of course a fishier um, in a not good way uh, in a way that I think people usually react to uh, negatively but if you get um, some good quality anchovies you know open the can and use them right away I've won converts, even kids who you think might not be into it. Like I've made a banya cauda, you know, banya cauda, mm. the sort of garlic anchovy sauce that you make with oil and butter. And Which can be quite aggressive. Yeah, you can make it at whatever level. But you do kind of cook the anchovies for that, so it it changes their nature a little. And I've seen, uh, I've been, had dinner parties where you serve that, and, you know, it's typically served with um, raw vegetables, and everyone sits around and dips the vegetables into the banya cauda. And um, even little kids start going for it. It's it's one of those ingredients that I, I was not raised with. Um, I didn't really grow up eating a lot of seafood. And uh, it's something that I always have in my kitchen. I'm, I'm addicted to it. I could eat them on their own, a little bit of oil, uh, Is there, squeezing y- lemon juice. You know, in the anchovy chapter, there's lots of anchovies, but there's also some other cured fish Ingredients like um, botarga, which, uh, as you know, is the pressed and salted roe, uh, fish roe. There's um, bonito, which is like smoked and dried um, tuna that you can um, shave. And there's fish sauce. And they're they're not exactly interchangeable, but to some extent they they kind of are. Is there some? Is there a Persian equivalent? Really, they eat a, the only kind of seafood dishes you see is uh, are in the south. Um, you will see the north by the Caspian, but I feel like mm, it's, it's just caviar. It's caviar, just caviar. Just caviar. <laughs> a lot of lamb in that, that country and and chicken. And but beef. not really like um, a salted fish ingredient that's used at, like as a seasoning. The way no, fish I was, sauce is. I was or? deprived. I, I uh, there's so many other items like the the pickles and the jams yeah. and there's so many other things that they preserve and and the sour ingredients, but. No, I I always crave the kind of and now like I I eat seafood majority of the days of yeah. the week. Yeah, yeah. I want to talk a little bit about your podcast, Cooking by Ear, where you're the host and you've had incredible guests. Your first guest was Frances McDormand. I think your most recent guest was Big Frida. I actually mm. have a connection with her. Oh yeah, <laughs> yeah. I when I had a brief stint in fashion, I worked as a fashion stylist and, and assisted styling her for 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 an event. Oh, were you in here or in New Orleans? Or? No, this is in New York. Oh, okay. Yeah, but uh, you are cooking alongside them in, in their kitchens, and the listener is able to cook with you. Yeah. So it's an hour long podcast. How did you even think of that format? The birth of the pot of cooking by ear happened. Uh, I was with a friend. We were actually on a beer run from a wedding where they had run out of drinks. And um, we were talking about cooking. And he said, you know, I love to make lentils, but it takes me like six hours to make a pot of lentils. And I end up drinking three bottles of wine, and it's just like a wipeout. And I said, you know, I got got you. Like, I'm going to show you how to do that different. And he's like, this is – he has a background in media. And he's like, this could be a podcast we could teach people to cook. And – we tried a couple different formats, and we eventually settled on this one where – because I, did, I felt like there wasn't really something like that out there uh, where you can cook along and that it happens in real time. So it was a combination of that desire to teach people to cook and then my own affection for radio and for 
listening to like NPR uh, programs and things like and podcasts when I'm in the kitchen. I really liked that. And I thought, oh, like what if, you know, you could have fresh air with a great interview, but you could also be cooking with it. And instead of I'm just cooking whatever I am and cooking and listening to to the interview, what if it was somehow integrated? And um, it's turned out to be for us a great way to uh, get access to the guests that we we like. You know, we always try and pick an interesting guest, and we've done some celebrities, but it they don't really need to be a celebrity. It just needs to be somebody who's interesting and has a good story to tell. But the fact that you know our pitch is we'll show up at your house, we'll bring our bag of groceries. You don't have to do any prep beforehand. We'll cook with you. We'll teach you to cook something. Then we'll all sit down and eat. And we'll do the dishes, and then we'll leave three or four hours later. And they don't have any homework after. Is an easy, is an easier ask. Plus, the, it's audio, so they don't have to like you know comb their hair or mm-hmm. anything. So that has I think gotten us in the the kitchen door of a lot of our guests. And then, like I said, the the act of cooking with people, I think, uh, engenders storytelling and and tends to kind of they kind of let their guard down. They relax a little, in a way that if you're just sitting across from somebody interviewing them it can sometimes it can feel a little stiff or a little difficult to kind of get into get to a level Uh, but when you're both like picking the herbs or uh, tipping the beans together you're like a little distracted and the stories tend to flow more yeah and you have something going on yeah you got something going on it's like I know with my kids it's like when we're um, in the car and we're all facing the same way we're not like looking right at each other I can get a little more uh, information out of them sometimes so I, I think it's it's that kind of thing and um, and you know Frida was amazing and uh, we went to her kitchen in New Orleans and I don't know if she didn't really uh, completely see what our concept was or if she just wanted to teach us because usually I teach my guests to cook something but in in the case of Big Frida she taught me how to make booty pop and potatoes and she gave me a twerk lesson. I'm not going to say she taught me to twerk because <laughs> I can't twerk. Unfortunately, part of that was captured on video, which I hope have has been destroyed. But it's gotten us into some great places. And we have um, season two is in the works. It should be out in November. That's so exciting. Yeah. It's hard not to talk about your life and your career without bringing up Shapenese. Mm. You left how many years ago? Uh, just about a year ago. A year ago. A little over a year ago. Yeah. 22 years. Almost 22 years I was there. I mean, I guess with with any job, uh, how could after being there for so long? But you know, I know, and for our listeners, Shapenese is not your regular restaurant. How would you describe it? I think the thing that I always thought, like from the very first time I went to Shapenese, I felt like that was like going to a friend's house who it turns out is just an amazing cook. You know, and because it has that sort of like the best version of home cooking feel to it. You know, the plating is pretty straightforward, not not too many, like, bells and whistles kind of thing. So I think that's the kind of feel of the place, and I think the dining rooms are kind of like that as well. But, of course, the most remarkable thing about Chapinese and the thing that I think has made it what it is is the is the food is, is delicious, and it's, it's very of the place. You know, Cal, uh, we're so lucky living in the Bay Area, as you know, uh, that we have access to just the most incredible ingredients, uh, especially produce. And so our cooking starts at the marketplace. And, uh, you know, a lot of people are doing this now. But back 
when Chez Panisse, when Alice first started Chez Panisse and through those first years, it was kind of a new thing. So to to start at the market, not start with the recipe, but see what's what's good and what um, what the farmers have brought, and to build your menu and your dishes in a way that shows off those ingredients as best as best you can almost get out and sometimes get out of their way and let them just be what they are and find that balance between bringing something special to it but also um, really honoring and respecting the the quality of the ingredients I, I think that's what what Chez Panisse has done and um Man, it has really spawned a lot of other businesses, right? Like the alumni are all over the country. All over. There's this openness. I mean, I felt safe. Maybe not the very, very first day when I had to like, I don't know, it was like two onion, two buckets of onions. Yeah. (laughs) I had to prep, but um, I'm very fortunate of growing up in a household where cooking was a big thing Mm -hmm. with my mother and my father. But I always say that Shapenese provided this kind of extended foundation it taught me how to cook yeah and i think you know it's important to to talk about that a little bit that you were you were saying that it felt like a safe space and uh, kitchens can be pretty intense and and as we all know there's been some abuse uh, that's gone on in kitchens and through my career i've worked with uh, in a lot of kitchens that are headed by women i think they tend to be uh not always there's some you know there's some exceptions, but they but they tend to be a more a safer space, um, a place where people feel welcome, and and certainly at Chez Panisse, there's a lot of respect that goes on there, and everyone keeps it at that level at all times. And you know, one of the things that when we have lots of visitors there, both 16 um, year old high school students and accomplished chefs from you know, visiting from all over and culinary school students and everyone in between. And one of the things that, um, especially the chefs who've come from other restaurants always say is like, wow, like what an incredible staff of like devoted people, like everybody there is kind of on it. And there's not a lot of people who are there because they just needed a job. They're there because they love food and they really want to like learn how to cook it the best way and be and, a part of that family and to be a part of that family and and you know like to have nice people and that's something I've learned and I'm hopefully I'm going to pass on to the people that I teach along the way I think that's all the time we have today but I can't thank you enough Cal uh, it's been beyond a pleasure again your his newest book is almonds anchovies and pancetta a vegetarian cookbook kind of Thank you, Cal. Yeah, thank you. The Bon Appetit Foodcast is produced by Carrie Polis and Christina Che and produced and edited by Emma Wurtzman. Our theme music is by Nathaniel Wurtzman. We have new episodes every Wednesday, and if you want to tell us about this or any other episode, email us at bonappetitfoodcast at gmail.com. Thanks for listening.